This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 252 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we have a fun story tonight, which yeah. I think they're all fun, but this one's this one's going to be a little bit different. Yay. So I can't wait to get into it. Obviously, we want to first thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Yes, thank you guys so much for keeping us safe. We pray for you guys every day, and you know what? Uh, we love you guys. You're our angels on this earth. So stay safe, and God bless you. Also, we want to take the time to remind anybody out there that if you're struggling right now with some mental health issues, maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety, could be any number of things, please remember that there are several people out there who care about you. If you are somehow telling yourself that you're a burden to people, that's just your mind playing tricks on you, you are 100% fine and you have people who love you and want to hear from you. Also, I always kind of want to reiterate, if you know people that may be struggling, don't wait for them to reach out because we all know that's kind of the issue here is, is most of these people don't want to reach out because they feel like you're a burden. Therefore, you need to take it upon yourself to reach out to friends and family members that might be struggling just to check on them, see how they're doing. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's a great thing to do. Um, you know, reach out and just say, hey, or just say, hey, what's going on? Anything like that can brighten up their day if they're having a bad day. So just remember to reach out as well. Uh, and, of course, we always have our group that you can rely on for support. Um, we love you guys for being there for everybody and so proud of you all for doing that. But if you want to um, talk to somebody on the hotline, you can call 800-273-8255. You can text them at 741-741. And like Jerry and I always say, we're always here. If you need to talk, um, just send us a message and we'll give you our number or, or whatever, and then we'll give you guys a call. Absolutely. As usual, this episode is brought to you also, let's make sure that everybody is aware that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So, it's, even if it's something that's always on your mind, try to go above and beyond to reach out to friends and family members. Absolutely. I mean, just even if something's bothering you and you just, you know, don't have any... I mean, it could be something, you know, anything. Just, you know, if something's bothering you and you just need somebody to talk to, just reach out. We'll do our best to help you and, you know, have a, have a nice conversation. Right, second half of the show tonight. So, Tracy, obviously, we support our police officers, and oh, we talk about time. them on a regular basis. Of course. And we talked about... Well, is that Peter Brady? Stop. <laughs> Everybody goes through puberty in their 50s. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> but anyway, we've talked in some of these shows before about 
police officers, when it comes to the paranormal, are some of the very most credible witnesses. You know, you could have just an average Joe Blow saying, oh, this is what I saw. But it seems to come more when you've got somebody from authority figure, like in the military, a police officer saying they saw it. Mm -hmm. To me, it just makes a lot lot more credible the story. We've had a couple of, of shows on here that we pointed out the police officers being the main witnesses, such as the 966 Lindley Street episode that we did, that uh, city up in Connecticut. Oh, that, yeah. That's mm-hmm. the one that was uh, obviously a case that I- I'm surprised hasn't made it to the big screen yet, but it was one of the Warrens cases. Mm-hmm. That one had a lot of police officers as witnesses, also firemen. So that I think that made that the most credible story uh, out of all of them that we've maybe covered just for that reason. Now, it's the same can be said about the uh, Bayeka case, that was the next Netflix movie, Veronica, that mm-hmm. we covered, the true story behind it. It had police officers that witnessed several things within the house yeah. that they couldn't explain, including shadow figures of, or, you know, stuff like that. So anyway, so we talked about putting the show together in the past with law enforcement officers telling their own stories. The problem was, obviously, it's tough to get people that are willing to go on record Mm-hmm. And tell it. Anybody tell you off, off, you know, the yeah. air that oh, this cool thing happened. They don't want to come on the air and do it because they don't want their credibility ruined. They don't want people to think they're a crackpot or something like that in their profession. So it's been hard putting that thing together. So what I did was decided that I was just I was ready to do that. And if if I couldn't find people ready to come on the air, I was just going to put some stories together, do a little research, and that's what I did. So most of these are fairly short, but. I thought they were still interesting to say the least. So as you can imagine, with these people remaining anonymous, and in, in these stories we got, I've got names, but I don't have cities. Mm. So I guess they kind of made it a little somewhat anonymous. But. Yeah. All right, here's the first one. This is by Meredith Shearman. And she said that she worked as a 911 uh Detect, not a detective, but uh, operator. I've always is that like a dispatcher. She, yeah, she was I've a dispatcher. I've always wanted to do that. But she was an actual police officer. Apparently, they didn't have just a full time dispatcher. That yeah, was so just, she helped. She out. was a police officer that did that as okay. well. And she said she took a call several years ago. The family making the call said that their teenage daughter was possessed. According to the family, there was no possibility of drugs or alcohol or mental health issues. Needless to say, Meredith was not buying any of this for a second. Mm -hmm. She just kind of rolled her eyes at it. Okay, whatever. Yeah. While she was on the phone with the family, there were some family members actually holding the girl down. And Meredith said she could hear two people screaming in the background. She asked the caller to ask whoever was screaming in the background to please stop. The caller said, it's my daughter. Meredith said, I know it's your daughter. But I'm talking about the other person that's talking at the same time as her. Can you tell them to stop? Meredith was shocked to hear the woman say, It's her. Both voices are my daughter. Oh, wow. Meredith said that both of these voices were talking over each other at the same time. She'd been doing this for 25 years at the time, but this was the creepiest thing that she had ever heard. Meredith said she knows of man's inhumanity and the horrible things that people do to each other, but this was a different kind of evil. 
she was clearly hearing a young girl's voice and an adult male yelling back at the same time. She couldn't understand the language, but there were definitely two different voices. The family swore that both voices were coming from the girl at the same time. Meredith said that her lieutenant later listened to the tape and said, do you ever wonder? And Meredith cut him off and said, yes. Yes, I do. Oh. So. Whoa. How freaky is that? Yes. <laughs> I mean, what in the world would you think if you were on the other end of that call? I mean, you would probably think that's not possible. And you can't see them. It's not like a video call. So you would automatically probably assume that they're still not telling you the truth. But sometimes you just have a feeling, a gut Mm -hmm. feeling. And my guess is that's what went on with Meredith. She probably had a gut feeling that, no, I've been doing this a long time and something about this is just off. Dang, I wish we knew the ending of it. Yeah, I am curious. And I did try to look up a little bit because I am curious what ended up happening? Did they send the police out? What happened? I don't. I have no clue. So I'd be better sending a priest out, not no police. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a really quick break before this next story. So, this story is from a gentleman by the name of Rob McGinley. Rob responded to a suicide as the lead detective. A male had hung himself in a tree in his backyard. Aww. Both detectives checked the residence, and both of the doors were locked with a deadbolt. The deadbolt was locked too? Yes. Rob made a call for some entry tools, and he made a call to his supervisor because the man's girlfriend was uh, nowhere to be found. She was unaccounted for, and they lived together. So they thought maybe this could be a possible murder-suicide. Rob and several police officers were standing at the back door on the south side of the house. The entrance had been checked multiple times by multiple officers while they were waiting on the entry tools to arrive. Rob looks at the door and he sees that there is now a gap where the deadbolt once was. He checked the door and it's now open. Keep in mind that there had been someone at this door the entire time and so So, there there couldn't have been anybody unlocked door or you know, from the inside or the outside because they would have heard it or seen it. Well, sure. They clear the residence. No one's inside. They even cleared the attic space. Inside the door that was quote-unquote magically opened were several notes from the suicide victim to his family members. Several of the officers were walking outside waiting on the man's next of kin to arrive. One of them tried to walk back into the house, but the door was once again deadbolted. The same door? Yes. Now let's keep in mind that the deadbolt can only be locked from the inside or with a key. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that would have to have a key, of course. No one had keys. The two co-detectives now were discussing how they were going to have to call again and ask for entry tools that they had called and canceled because oh, they didn't need, you know. They, they canceled before they got they, there? Yeah, they canceled before they got there. That's and annoying. And to call again and get these tools again. Well, during the conversation, the door unlocked right in front of them. <laughs> oh, man. They cleared the house again. Once again, no one was inside. Rob and his partner did not go back into the house the rest of the day. 
Well, that is crazy. So think about that situation. You've got a house that's completely locked up, dead bolted, can only be unlocked from the inside, or if you're outside, it's got to have the key. Nobody has a key. It was locked, then unlocked, and locked again, and then unlocked again. I wonder what the purpose of that was, though. I mean, even if there was a ghost in there, what is the purpose? Well, of- I'm thinking that maybe it was the spirit of the man who hung himself. And maybe he wanted to make sure they could get inside to find those notes. Oh. And then once they had the notes, then they didn't need to be in there, I guess, maybe. Uh, that's that's probably my guess. No, oh, Sorry he did that. But then that's he opened sad. it up again at the end. And, you know, so they just didn't go back in it again. Yeah, that's pretty wild. This one is from an officer by the name of Chuck Fail, P-H-E-I-L. Chuck answered a welfare check call between 2 and 3 a.m. one night. We mentioned the other day on one of the Hibbley Shorts we did, we were Mm -hmm. doing some of these extra stories, that so many of these police encounters that I have ran across were all around the 2 to Mm 3 o'clock in the morning thing. So something about that 3 a.m. thing that just always stands out yeah, when it comes that's to the paranormal. True. So anyway, he takes his call between 2 and 3 a.m. The call is for an elderly woman who lived next door to the caller. The caller said that the lady was in her 90s and she hadn't been seen in a while. Oh. At the time of the call, there was a bad thunderstorm happening, but currently there was no rain. It was just the thunder. Right. And the wind and stuff. The officer decided to go to the woman's house who made the call first because he was curious as to why she decided to make a welfare check call at 2 o'clock in the morning. morning. Yeah. Seemed kind of odd. Strange time for a welfare call. Of course. Especially, well, you know, they'll get welfare calls, but usually there's some kind of a disturbance or something. Right, yeah. Maybe they've heard something, some yelling or screaming going on. They want to go, what's going on? So the lady explains to him that she hasn't seen her neighbor in weeks. And she's in her 90s, so obviously she's concerned. She further explains that she has called to get no answer. She's knocked on the door, got no answer there. And she's starting to think that she's probably deceased and has been for some time. Oh, no. So the cop and the caller go next door to the neighbor's house. First thing the cop notices is that there's three inches of dust on, on the car and the mail is piling up. He notices there is no lights on in the house anywhere. Not that he can see. He first walks to the side door and knocks with his flashlight. He knocked loud enough so even an elderly person that might have some hearing difficulties would have been able to hear him. After a few minutes of not getting an answer, he walks to the backyard. He's checking all of the windows. Everything seems to be okay. He turns to the lady who made the call and, and says, hey, I don't really see anything out of the ordinary here. They well, start, except for three inches of dust and all her mail piling up. Right, but that's not necessarily out of the ordinary. She well, could that be gone, could on gone on. somewhere, yeah. I guess. They walk to the front of the house. The window blinds are, are open. And he can see a little bit of a glow coming from the, uh, mm-hmm. the windows. Now, the problem is these windows are about seven feet off the ground. So he can't just look straight in. They're, they're kind of tall. So he can't peek inside. And, and so the caller runs next door and grabs a bucket for the officer to stand on. 
Chuck climbs up on the bucket and he can see into the living room. The glow is coming from the TV, which is on a blue screen. I guess like when, oh, you know, mm-hmm. the VCR or something, you've got it on. Yeah. The glow was bright enough, though, that the officer didn't need to use his flashlight to be able to see all around the living room. He first looked at the floor to make sure that no one had fallen and was laying on the floor. He then checked the sofa and recliner, still didn't see anybody. Now, he could see the telephone and the base, and he could see the lights flashing, showing that there was some missed calls and some messages, Mm -hmm. but the phone was still there. He used his flashlight to shine through the window, and now he could see down the hall, and he saw that there was an open door down the hall. Still no sign of anybody. So Chuck turns around and he tells the the 911 caller, everything looks okay and and nothing is disturbed in the house. He turns around and an elderly woman is now looking right back at him face to face with her face right up against the glass of the window. Holy crap. I would have crapped my pants. Chuck said that he couldn't breathe. It felt like that he had been hit in the chest with a baseball bat. It freaked him out so much. He fell backwards off of the bucket, and he hit the ground hard. The collar rushed over to help him up. Well, Chuck pushed the collar off of him and hopped right back on that bucket because he, he had to see inside. He said his heart was pounding so fast, but he just had to see what was going on up there. Instinct caused him to reach for his gun as he looked through the window. He said what he saw was a frail little old lady in a long nightgown with her back to him. He said she slightly turned her head and looked at him, then slowly walked down the hall till she got out of view. Chuck said he was completely unnerved by what had just happened. He got down off the bucket, looked at the collar. Obviously, she was staring with a confused look because she don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. All Chuck could say is that he saw her. At this point, the rain really started to fall. Chuck said that he began to walk back to his car. He turned and looked at the collar and said, don't come back here. Chuck said he got into his car, drove back to the police department. He never found out about the lady that lived there. He he said he knew that the caller never called back. And he knows that the house has different tenants now. He said some things are just better left unknown. That is the weirdest ass story I've ever heard. (laughs) I mean, I I would have just still went in the house and been like, what the heck? Well, he was knocking on the door and stuff. Nobody, he can't just force his way in. He seen the woman. The woman seemed to be okay. He can't force his way in. Oh my goodness. Mm. Yeah. I can't can you imagine her just popping up like that in front of your face? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My guess is that that was probably a spirit. Oh and I God. think that's what he thought too. Okay, but then but still. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. You would have thought he would have went back to the department and said, hey, here's what happened. Yeah. Maybe we need to check and see, because she could have been under some kind of, uh, you know, Alzheimer's or something like that, where she had no clue what was going but on. But that's what I'm saying. I think I, think I still would have went in. And he, he may have, he might not have went in. I mean, what did, he can't go just go in. He'd have to bust the door in. 
And then if you bust the door in and there's nothing wrong, now you busted the door in. If she doesn't let you in, she doesn't let you in. She doesn't have to. Okay. But I would have thought he probably should have went back to the police station and said, here's what I saw. This might need some follow-up. Yeah. But he said, ain't going to be me following up. Well, and then the lady said, uh, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but the caller that called in said she wasn't aware of the lady having any family or friends or anything. So who who's going to ever come check on her? Okay, but so so now people... There's different people that live there, so when they moved in, what? Oh, I don't know, but that, I mean, it's not like they just moved in and it's like, oh, here's a dead body. I mean, that would have all been found out ahead of time, but <laughs> he's just saying that she don't live there anymore. She could be in a home. Yeah. Doesn't mean that she's dead. But That's very true. Oh, that is so creepy. My guess is she's dead, though. Oh. This one's from Joel Pridge, P-R-I-D-G. This happened in the late 1990s in Austin, Texas. This guy is one of the few that I found actually told where it, where it was. There was an alarm call at an old PTA building across the street from the courthouse. By the time Joel had actually shown up with a senior officer, the alarm had stopped sounding. During their inspection of the building, they found an unsecured door slightly open on the east side. Joel was told to stay there, monitor the door, while the senior officer further inspected the rest of the perimeter. Other officers started showing up to back up. Joel was staring right at the door as the alarm started sounding again. The door then loudly slammed shut in his face. Senior officer went back and asked, why did you shut the door? And of course, Joel said, I didn't shut the door. So they called for a canine unit and soon the officer and a dog arrived. Joel went into the building with the canine unit to try to clear the structure. They didn't find anything, but the dog acted very strange the entire time that they were inside. It was as if someone was in the building, but he couldn't quite pick up a scent. So they secured the building, and eventually the key holder showed up. The key holder said, Well, you know this place is haunted, right? (laughs) (laughs) There was a secretary who supposedly worked here about 30 years ago and after she died she never quit showing up to work Hmm, that's dedication yeah paper would fly off desks doors would close sightings you name it the works so jeff and the canine officer told the key holder the next alarm call was all his how about that (laughs) unless it really was something and they were screwed (laughs) Yeah, but they went through. The dog couldn't find a person in there. Yeah. And they looked around the whole place, and they couldn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And the guy apparently knew what was going on, so apparently this wasn't his first alarm. This next story is by, I swear this has to be a made-up name, Billy Bravo. Nice. This was around 2015. He was patrolling around 3 a.m. He drives by this small airport in his jurisdiction and he said it's he drives by it a few times a night because they had been broken into before Mm -hmm. so he makes it a point to go by there it's in the middle of the woods which doesn't seem like a great place for an airport i'm just saying yeah that's kind of weird i want to have a little more flexibility there but anyways he says it's got several small hangars and one main office building on this night he could hear an alarm sounding from inside the, the building He hadn't gotten any kind of a call saying, you know, 
what's going on or, or yeah. telling him that there's something going on. He heard it himself, so he took it upon himself to just walk up into the building. He said it was completely dark and not occupied. So he does a check of the building. Every entrance is secure. So now he's just waiting on the key holder to come let him in so he can clear the inside. Now, in a lot of these cases, and I can vouch for this from running so many businesses that, that I have, you know, a, a door can be a little bit loose, so it can still be locked. But yeah. the wind can the make wind it bounce make it, back and mm -hmm. forth. That'll that'll kick it off. We've had balloons set off motion oh, detectors yeah. and stuff like that. So anything can trip an alarm. So the key holder and his wife show up a few minutes later. They open the door, and Bill clears the office and the garage. Nothing's disturbed. However, the cash register was all the way open. The key holder smiled, and he just told the officer that his father had created and built the airport before he passed away. He said the airport and the planes here were his passion. It was his life's work. Then he says that he believes that his father does this, setting off alarms, so that he can bring family members to the airport so he can say hello and make his presence known. <laughs> He doesn't have any other explanation for it. He just knows it happens all the time. Oh, well, that's sweet. So I guess no airplanes fly in at night then. Probably not. not. It's probably just like a, just a little small yeah. setup. I mean, even though that's very sweet, I would be very annoyed by that. Right. At the all same right. time. So we're going to end it on a little short one by a gentleman by the name of Kyle Broadus. He said that one of their regular callers was a woman in her late 80s. Sometimes she didn't take her medicine, and she would have hallucinations. She would see her children in her house, and she would call to report that they were in there moving her belongings around and making noise, etc. Kyle's been to her house several times over the years for these calls. On one occasion, he was chatting with her in the dining room, and she was getting really aggravated because she could see her children, but he couldn't. She looked at Kyle and loudly and convincingly said, you can't see him? He's been staring at you for 10 minutes now and grinning. <laughs> oh, yeah. While saying this, she was pointing to a spot five feet from him. Kyle said he knows she was hallucinating, but she spoke about it with such concern and conviction that it was extremely creepy. Mm. I mean, maybe she did see him. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure she did. But he didn't say that the kids were dead. Right. So, but oh. he said it just, you can imagine if somebody was, you know, pointing and and just seemed super concerned that they were that convinced of what they were seeing, how it might creep you out a little bit. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, it's, and, then, and then another note, that's really sad. It is. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, if she, if that's not really happening, but she sees that. I mean, and it had to be so frustrating for her because she can't prove it. No, absolutely. Oh, bless her heart. All right. So we're going to take a quick break from our sponsor. And then we're going to be back to uh, talk a little bit Patreon and a little bit of iTunes reviews. And then obviously we've got this awesome... Uh, storytelling by Jason Tenney. He is a professional storyteller, so he knows how to tell a story. <laughs> Good. All right, Tracy, what? some quick housekeeping. We are down to the last 12 or 13 tickets to the St. Augustine show. Mm -hmm. 
And then you've, we've got a bunch of other shows. Obviously, we've got Memphis, we've got Galveston, and we've got the Dallas area and Bobby Mackey's. Go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and you can check on all of those. Yeah. And then, obviously, we've got the cruise. That number is, I can't even tell you where it's at now. It's just, <laughs> you guys amaze me so much. Can't wait for it. We're yeah. so excited about that. Yeah, we cannot wait for the shows to come up. It's like, we love the summer, and we want to enjoy it, but then we also want it to get hurry up and get here so we can see you guys. I want to tell you guys real quick, they're a, a really good friend of the show, Todd Hedges and his buddy Sean uh, started a podcast a little while back. It's called Middle-Aged and creeped out. Mm-hmm. It's a really fun show. Yes. He's a longtime listener. He's been to our house. Mm-hmm. He actually started doing research and came and sat in with us well, a year and a half ago or so. Yeah. This is how long they've had this in the works. And, and he sat with us and recorded part of an episode. I can't remember which episode, but he's on one of the episodes when we did. And uh, the show's coming along really nicely. I'm really thrilled with uh, what they're doing with it. And I would advise you all to go take a listen. It's called Middle-Aged and Creeped Out. And you've seen Todd uh, Hedges, no doubt, in the group. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, you guys stuff. give him a listen. Go check it out. Tracy, what do we got over there? Um, well, for iTunes, we have Hot Tub Girl, Alzi68, and Good Old Mojo Lobster. Thank you guys for your reviews. We appreciate y'all so much. And our Patreons this week are Brandon S. and Mark. Thank you guys for your support. You guys rock. And just keep those reviews coming and... I thank you guys for hanging in there with us. And keep in mind, as far as Patreon, if you subscribe for a dollar a month, you get all episodes commercial free. Yeah. So you, there is a way to get out of these commercials if you don't like them. And then it helps the show at the same time. True. It does. All right. Let's give Jason a quick listen. Hey, guys. I've got a special guest on. I've got Jason Tenney from Chattanooga Ghost Tours. First of all, Jason, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Jerry. Uh, excited to be here. So here's how this happened. We went to Chattanooga on a, on a visit. Actually, we was a little further than Chattanooga, about 30, 30 miles outside. But we decided that we wanted to do a ghost tour. We, and we looked up and, and saw the rave reviews for Chattanooga ghost tours. I mean, I saw something back in 2018 said it was like the fastest growing ghost tour in the U.S. And uh, I started looking at uh, other reviews and everybody just said it was great so i said let's let's go on a ghost tour and of course tracy loves it when i drag her on a ghost tour no matter where we go it's like are we ever going to be able to do something that's not paranormal related <laughs> but it's like we went to key west i'm like i'm not going to go to key west and not go see robert the doll i mean how many times do you sure. get to do that and yeah. but so we go on the ghost tour jason was our guide and had such a fantastic time. I, I thought your knowledge of the area was fantastic. A lot of times, Jason, on these ghost tours, and we've been on several, and I realized they didn't look different with you guys. Most of the tour guides have acting experience and and or they're musicians, but that's fine because I think that's definitely plays a huge part in in displaying the story. But some of these, like when we went to Myrtle's plantation, was so over the top theatrical that I think it takes away from the tour. And there's a difference between playing a character and being a good storyteller. And I can't speak for the rest of your crew, but you are a fantastic storyteller. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank so uh, I wanted to bring you on the show. We talked, got had a chance to talk a little bit after the tour and uh, 
So I want to first let's let's talk a little bit about you. Like I said, you've got some acting experience from all the way from New York all the way down to Chattanooga and a bunch of places in between, which is cool. It, but you're also also an author mm-hmm. and got some some a couple of books under your uh, tutelage there. But also, I found this the most interesting. And I don't know why I'm kind of goofy. You are a harmonica player, right? <laughs> right. So I, I, I'm curious about this. And I love the harmonica. Out of every instrument in the world, what made you choose harmonica as your main instrument of choice? Well, uh, I try to make this as brief as possible. When I got into music, uh, I I came in through the back door, so to speak. A person I knew uh, was starting a band and he wanted me to be in the band. And I said, that's great, congratulations, but I don't play music. I don't I don't sing. Uh, if you hear me sing, it's much scarier than any of the stories I might share with you on a ghost tour. But um, uh, he said, no, I want you to write lyrics for songs and we'll figure something out for you. Well, I had a harmonica laying around in the house I was living in and I, happened to be in the right key uh, that he was playing guitar in. And he's and it was kind of like, you know, you know, it was, uh, it, I, I, I love the sound of it and I could do it. And I, and I sort of taught myself how to do it. And I have kind of my own style. Um, there is a, uh, there's a, a well-known uh, singer songwriter in the Chattanooga area by the name of Roger Allen Wade, who, uh, who, um, is a is an amazing songwriter and i played with him one time and uh he said no i love the way you're playing i don't like any of that fancy stuff you got a really nice highway harmonica sound so it's kind of uh it's kind of a cross between uh akin to uh country folk blues and uh and i try not to do anything fancy and just uh help tell the story that the the, the singer might be uh delivering to an audience so um but i I love the sound of it and um and i don't and i think that there's something very dynamic about uh the way that it accents songs and um and uh in and i you know if you're to look at it as a play you know uh the harmonica is a is a supporting character but a very important supporting character I'm surprised you don't bring it on the tours. That might actually be pretty cool. Well, you know, uh, my partner's uh, father, uh, she's from, uh, her family's from Paducah, Kentucky. And he is always like, why aren't you using the harmonica? Why aren't you using the harmonica? And frankly, I haven't, I haven't gotten the confidence yet to, uh, (laughs) to, uh, to, uh, to uh, incorporate it into the storytelling. But my goal is to start adding it, uh, spoiler uh, perhaps this summer, uh, my, my fear was it would always be at this point, it would be over the top. So, uh, but I I think that, I think that, I think that there are plans that it will be incorporated this, uh, this summer. So I'm hoping to, uh, to, cause it is, you can really make it a spooky sound. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. So how long have you been with the tour company? I started it in August of last year. So, um, um, uh, will be a year this coming August, and um, the owner of Chattanooga Ghost Tours, Amy Batula, her and I were uh, acting in a radio play down in Georgia, and that's how we were introduced, and she asked me if I would be interested in 
coming aboard Chattanooga Ghost Tours and doing storytelling and being a guide. And uh, I said I was very interested and uh, I, I started doing it and I fell absolutely in love with it, uh, with, uh, with the ghost stories, with the history of the city. And as I say on the tour, uh, you really can't have one without the other. And uh, so uh, that's how it all got started for me. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. So let's talk a little bit about the history of that city. So, uh, you know, I, the first thing I want to point out is that, you know, our story that we just did was on the the Reed House Hotel. Right. And the funniest thing for us is that the night of the tour, it was supposed to be perfect weather, zero percent chance of, of any type of humidity or rain. And we got probably, I don't know, halfway through. And we get to the the Reed House Hotel, and right before we were scheduled to 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 walk into the courtyard, the wind kicks up. It starts getting like hurricane type winds for a matter of probably the rest of the tour, and then it kind of slowed down a little bit after that. But as we were standing in the courtyard talking about the Reed House Hotel, it started to rain. We had the wind going crazy. And I thought for us, it couldn't have been more perfect timing considering that's what our story was going to be on. Right, right. That um, Chattanooga, uh, uh, there's nothing scheduled to jump out on the tours, I say. Uh, I say scheduled. And Chattanooga's natural environment tends to lend its, uh, uh, to uh, accentuate the tours uh, always at the right moments it seems so yeah that was a that was a wild night and and that's in that i would say that that's some that's typical and you know speaking of which you said uh, <laughs> something just kind of natural happening there was one part where we were walking and you had us cross the street so we wouldn't walk underneath of a tree <laughs> and nobody thought anything of it until you mentioned that, hey, uh, we don't walk underneath that tree because that tree is full of bats. Mm -hmm. How did you first find out that that tree was full of bats? Because obviously something had to happen to well, make you start changing the route. Well, when when hundreds and hundreds of them swooped out of those trees <laughs> and descended upon the guests one evening, that's when I was like, oh, the bats have relocated. Uh, <laughs> In the summertime, the bats are usually in all those trees that are along Broad Street, uh, close to the uh, Reed House, and uh, they found a new home in those set of trees. Uh, I believe they're, uh, I believe they're cherry trees, actually. And um, so uh, they all came one night. We were the group was coming uh, down Walnut Street, and um, they all swooped out. And and having had experiences with bats in Chattanooga. I knew exactly where they were. Oh, they aren't these lovely birds. I said, those are not birds. Those are, uh, those are bats. And, uh, and, uh, so, uh, and the bats haven't moved, uh, since they're still, they're still there. So. Now that right there where that tree was, there's a house on the corner, a big building, not a house, a big building that you were telling us about. It's got quite a history to it and it's been vacant for, I believe you said 16 years or so. Correct. Uh, tell tell our listeners about that building and what happened there, and and a little bit of the of what's happened since with that building. Well, um, not to uh, give too much away from the to, from the story, but um, uh, you know that is uh, an old uh, asylum, 
uh, or medical clinic that has been closed for the last 16 years. Um, and the reason that it's closed is because it's uh, condemned. And, um, you know, there are, it's kind of a mysterious building because it's not a lot of people know about it. And, um, you know, people pass it by all the time and, and they don't know the history of it, but it was, uh, it was a medical clinic that had a psychiatric ward and, um, it, um, it's one of those kind of stories in, in, in Chattanooga that's shrouded with a lot of mystery because there aren't a lot of records about it and there aren't a lot of people that were connected with the original building that are still around. So some of these stories have been handed down from research that we've done at the library. And, um, and I should also point out that all the stories that uh, our guides and uh, storytellers share are documented from one source or another. And um, so, you know, when it opened, it, were, it was the early days of psychiatric treatment. So there was very little regulation on who was treated there. Children and adults were treated there. Um, there was very, very little, little regulation on how they were treated. So these are the early days of psychiatric treatment. And there are stories of, of um, uh, mistreatment and and, and kind of horror stories of, of experiments with uh, psychiatric treatment, hydrotherapy, electroshock therapy, first days of lobotomies. And um, so it seems that those, it seems that pretty consistently with those kind of stories around the country, uh, you know, you have the famous Waverly uh, Hospital in, in Kentucky, correct? Uh, yeah, it's an hour uh, away from us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have all those stories of that seem to be pretty similar of experimentation and then these stories of, uh, of um, horrific treatment of patients uh, uh, come through. So those are persisted throughout the year. And yeah, uh, that, that nobody has occupied that building for the last 16 years because it's condemned and... Um, um, you know, I've had my experiences there, uh, you know, I've had some, uh, there, as you noticed, there were blinds in the windows. Now, before I started the tour, other tour guides had talked about these blinds, uh, guests have seen these blinds move and I've had guests on my tours seen these blinds move. And, um, about two months ago, I was doing the tour, uh, I was sharing the story with my guest, and there are two sets of windows in front of this building that have these, uh, these, these slat blinds, I guess you would call them. And as I was walking in front of those windows, sharing the story with one section of the guest, and then walking across the nether, another portion of the building to the other set of windows, everybody lined up on the curb started jumping off of the curb back into the street and pointing at the building and uh <laughs> i didn't turn around i just asked what's going on well apparently all these blinds were moving with me as i was moving in front of the windows and continued to move with me as i moved to the second section of windows now as i indicated uh, shared that story with you all there's only been a couple times on this tour where I have really gotten the heebie-jeebies, and that was one of the times. And I didn't even see what was happening, but just looking at the reaction of the guests' face on uh, as they were watching this happen was pretty uh, um, uh, powerful. 
Um, I've had guests who have gone up to that building and they've taken pictures in the windows, taken pictures in the stairwell uh, around the corner. And on one occasion, I had a woman who was taking photographs in the stairwell, which we've gotten photographs of what appear to be children in those stairwells on two separate occasions. And as the woman was taking the photograph, she felt the sensation of something constricting on her throat, um, as if somebody was squeezing her throat. But the thing that was very distinctive about her experience is she felt like it was on the inside of her throat. It wasn't like somebody externally was grabbing her throat, but it felt like somebody's hand was inside of her throat, squeezing her throat. Now, when she backed away from the building and got into the streets, uh, that sensation went away. Uh, another curious occurrence is I've had, since I've been doing the tour, I've had maybe four or five women who have been pregnant on the tour. Um, and far along in their pregnancy. And every one of them, when we have gotten to that old sanitarium, all four or five of them, let's say it's five of them, all five of them have said that once we've moved on, we've got to our next stop, that when they've got to the sanitarium, their babies have started to kick very um, aggressively. And, and they've all said the same thing, that the, the babies were fine as we were walking through the rest of the tour. But at that sanitarium, for some reason, all five of those guests who were pregnant, their babies started to kick in a very um, uh, aggressive way, which I found very interesting. I want to go back to the blinds. Uh, you were talking about that incident where you had the everybody saw the blinds moving. Mm -hmm. Now, to make this clear to our listeners, this isn't like the the blinds kind of shifted a little bit right to the left, like the wind could be causing. This was like somebody parting the blinds with their fingers as if they were looking out, correct? Exactly, exactly. And as uh, as we've mentioned, nobody's been in and out of that building for for 16 years now. And so there's no, there's no uh, uh, HVAC system going on in there, moving the blinds. There's nothing... Um, there's nothing uh, that would cause that. So um, it is a very curious thing and it's happened on my tour and it's happened on other guest tours. And um, that, I, that I always say that that building gives a lot. And I always say that on the creep meter, it, I always give it a nine, a solid <laughs> nine, perhaps a 9.5. I, I had some guests from Oxford, Mississippi when on the tour and I mentioned that, oh, I, I give that a 9.5 on the creep meter. So, oh no, we give it a 10. We give it a 10. <laughs> so uh, it is a, it is, and it is one of the more, um, it is one of my, one of my favorite sites on the tour because it is so, people have such a visceral reaction to it. I mean, they have visceral reactions to a lot of the other tours that we go, but um, uh, that, that site is very, very curious. And, and I think also because it is, shrouded in so much mystery and there is a lot of history there's a lot there's history that goes um there's history that that that, that proceeds that building there um uh, we had a yellow fever epidemic hit chattanooga in 1878 and i've been told uh that one of the first um uh victims of the yellow fever one of the first uh bodies discovered was 
at that location. There used to be a behind that where that building stands today, there was a street that ran behind it. And that that was where the first uh, um, death occurred or the, the, the body was discovered there. Um, there were some churches up around that area that would contribute to some of the hauntings um, around that area. So it, and it's, 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 a, it's a curious uh, spot. And um, so, uh, like I said, it gives a lot. So the, the city of Chattanooga has a lot of history that's not paranormal related, at least in the right. uh, in the beginning parts, uh, such as horrific flooding. Uh, talk a little bit about that and what the steps that the city took to kind of fix that problem. Okay, well, that's a really interesting uh, portion of Chattanooga's history. So for many, many years, if you visit Chattanooga, you will see that Chattanooga is a city of hills. And there is, and of course, it is located on the banks of the Tennessee River. And the lower section of the city um, is what I call what I call the floodplain. When I describe to when I when I describe this this portion of the history of the city, this is you know we start to tour in what I consider the floodplains. Well, over the years, particularly in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Chattanooga, and it, they seem to happen every seven to 10 years, these catastrophic floods would rage through the city. The most famous one uh, is, uh, or one of the more famous ones is the flood of 1867, um, where the Tennessee River rose 58 feet above its normal level. Now, that's approximately three stories. So the entire city, uh, the lower portion of the city was underwater. Uh, the rail, the rail yards were underwater. I mean, essentially, the bottom half of the city became part of the Tennessee River. Well, folks decided that they needed to do something about this. And um, when the next flood, which happened in the early 1870s, I believe, um, they they proposed an idea of putting levees on the river, um, but that was too expensive. Um, then the, the businesses came together with the city and they decided that, well, why don't we raise the city? Why don't we build upon it? And there are very few records though of this. These were all this, this, this belief in a quote unquote underground in Chattanooga is, is a theory. Uh, there were very few records. There was never a declaration that on this date, the city is going to be raised. But uh, archaeologists and geologists have gone underneath the city and they have found underground rooms that appear to be underground rooms. We have the tunnel system that runs underneath the city. Um, uh, living, what appear to be living rooms and fireplaces have been found in these tunnels. So the theory is that, that at some point, this folks in the city, biz, particularly spurred by the businesses, decided to to build upon the city anywhere between five and 20 feet above the original street level of Chattanooga. Um, and part of it is because the floods were, were destroying property, but also some research that I've done is one of the things is 1878, as I had mentioned earlier, yellow fever came. 
So when you have a city that gets several floods and things never have a chance to dry out, that was one of the other reasons, one of the motivations for trying to raise this city is that if we create, if we if we get the city to dry out at some point, perhaps, you know, uh, this yellow fever epidemic won't be such an issue. We won't have to deal with that kind of problem. You know, it all goes into sewage and and all that kind of stuff and, and making it, um, you know, hygiene and and trying to to deal with that problem. So, yes, as I mentioned, we have like these underground rooms that are very mysterious. We have these these tunnels, um, and folks have you know when the city are, are the only people that have legal access to any of these underground rooms, um, and they've gone down there over the years, and we've heard stories of people seeing. Uh, seeing apparitions down there of people that appear to be dressed in old timey um, uh, dress clothes. Um, and uh, they've seen gray misty figures down there. They've heard strange noises down there. You talk to some of the city folks that go down there. They don't like to go down into those tunnels because of the, the strange uh, sights and sounds that they see down there. But it is an interesting part of our history that is, again, is, is shrouded in a little bit of mystery because we don't have concrete proof about this. We have uh, buildings throughout the downtown area that you will notice arches peeking up from the sidewalk. And the belief is that those are all the original windows that have all been bricked in. Um, yeah, um, so it is a fascinating uh, part of the city. People always ask, it's like, well, can you go into these undergrounds? And, and, um, or can you do tours of them? Uh, well, that would be great, but um, <laughs> structurally, it's just not safe. And it would take so much money to be able to make it um, safe for the public to go down there. Now, if you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody you can get down there. Unfortunately, I don't know any of those people, but um, I do know that um, I do know that the University of Tennessee Chattanooga, their uh, geology class, um, I've had some of their students on my tour and, and they've told me about some of their experiences because they're able to go down there and, you know, for geological purposes to investigate some of those uh, rooms that are a little bit safe. But it is a, it is a really neat, um, a neat uh, aspect of the city. Now on the tour, you show us a small example of some of this. You know, we're in a parking lot and it's got, you know, a couple of different levels. And underneath one of the levels at street level of the other part of the parking lot, it's a place that you guys call the underground. And it's got a fence separating most of it. Beautiful limestone brick, some brick walls back there. This used to be a former mortuary. And you guys have gotten tons of pictures uh, shared with you from back in this particular part. You showed us a lot of pictures on the tour. And I would say probably two thirds of them came from this area. So tell me a little bit about some of the pictures that you've gotten on this tour. Well, you can see them. You, uh, if you go to uh, our website, Chattanooga Ghost Tours, you can see some of those photos. But yeah, we have uh, gotten some interesting photos. Uh, several years ago, uh, a ghost hunter was on the tour and captured a fascinating photo of what appears to be a, a woman in an orange dress that is along the back wall of this underground area. Uh, it's very distinct. Uh, it's... Uh, it's not uh, one of those kind of photos where you're like, well, what, you know, uh, there's another photo that was also taken in that underground area of a woman that appears to be in a blue dress. 
um, which was actually the subject of a news story. And it's a very, it's a, it's a full form photograph of what appears to be an individual. Um, uh, so it, it is very active for, for what we call ghost photos. Um, and, um, and one of the reasons that we think that, um, um, uh, that that site is so active is because of that limestone. If you um, sometimes uh, on shows like Ghost Adventure or Ghost Hunters, they talk about the stone tape theory. And the idea is that certain rocks, because of their geological makeup, are able to absorb these energies uh, and store them and replay them. They're, they become, in essence, a recording device. And um, there is a lot of limestone in that area where we go to, and that's one of the ideas why we feel that uh, we get a lot of uh, ghost photos down there, or, or at the very least, very curious photos. Um, I've had a guest who, uh, who had done my tour, but had also done our tour five years prior to me joining the group, and she was telling me the story of she had captured several photographs of orbs on a digital camera in that underground. And she was back at her hotel after the tour was over. She was very excited about these photos. She's looking at these orbs and they're very distinct. And she was going to email them to her friends the next morning. And when she opened up her camera the next morning, all of those orbs disappeared from those photos. So, um, and um, so it's a it's a very interesting um, spot, and it is one of the most active on our tour. Now, uh, there was also one of the reasons that we stopped there, and there's a historic marker at that um, at that underground, which is a garage today, but it still maintains all of that old 1800s limestone. There's a marker there, uh, uh, which. Uh, tells a little bit about the story about G.W. Franklin, who was uh, an entrepreneur in Chattanooga. He was Chattanooga's first African-American businessman. And one of the businesses that he had, which was, which was located where that garage is today, was he was an undertaker. That was a funeral home back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So uh, that certainly contributes to um, the... Um, theory that that uh of that garage being haunted or uh active uh, and another funny thing about the franklin family they're still in chattanooga and they're still in the funeral business yeah it's a business that never dies uh, pun intended gw was smart he said what is a business that i will always have customers jason it's been a blast having you on the show uh, it's been, you know, it was fun having having the tour with you. I think you were probably the perfect tour guide for us. Oh, tell tell people how they can uh, get the tour uh, when they come to town. How often do you guys do tours? And can they specifically request you? You sure can. Uh, just ask for Jason. Um, uh, you can go to ChattanoogaGhostTours.com. That is the quickest and easiest way to book a tour, and it's. Um, and you can, or you uh, can give us a call. All that information is at the website and you can specifically ask for Jason. Uh, we do tours seven nights a week. Uh, we, do, uh, we do our 
Murder and Mayhem tour, which is the tour that you uh, took. And um, we do them um, multiple tours a night. And um, so we have room for everybody. And we also do a ghost hunt, which is a, um, is uh, more of an investigative tour of Chattanooga. It takes place on uh, a portion of the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, uh, the old section of the campus and centers around a cemetery, which is um, connected to that university campus across the street from the campus. Citizen Cemetery, which is the oldest uh, cemetery in Chattanooga. It's uh, 182 years old and they pulled out all the cool ghost hunting equipment like uh, um, the obelisk, which is the talking machine that pe picks up frequency. And it's more of an investigation. Our tour, the tour that I do is, uh, is a walking tour of the city and uh, share the haunted history of Chattanooga. But uh, yeah, seven nights a week. And uh, so ChattanoogaGhostTours.com is where you'd go and just ask for Jason or the Tennessee ghost. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, we'll actually put some links of that in the show notes so people can, uh, if they forget or if they didn't have a pen or they just couldn't remember, <laughs> it'll be there so you can just click and go to it. Jason, it's been fun, buddy. Thanks for sharing some time with us. Jerry, it's been a blast and it's a, it was a pleasure meeting you. I'm glad that we got to connect again. I look forward to staying in touch. Same here, buddy. Well, Tracy, he was just as fun as he was on the tour. Yes, he was. And that was a really good time. He's a good, uh, good storyteller and makes it you know, interesting. Yeah, and like we said, we we talked a little bit. I can't remember if it was on the episode or afterwards, but we talked about the fact that he's not like over the top, you know, quirky mm -hmm. and all. Like somebody's a really theatrical. And oh yeah, he's not like that, and and I, I I was really glad that he wasn't. So yeah, true. Anyway, one quick thing before we get out of here, um, I still have a book for sale. You can get a personalized copy at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. And I want to bring up Patreon one more time because some people may not realize that at the $3 level, you get all the, the ad-free stuff, mm -hmm. but you also get a listener stories episode that's about 30 to 45 minutes at the first of every month. It's, you, the listeners, get to come on and tell us your story. Sometimes we read them if you don't want to come on air. Most of the time we record them so you get to hear listeners tell their stories. Yeah, huh? And it's at really the $5 fun. level, you get that episode, plus we do a full-length radio episode. Like, we just did one that was released yesterday on the 15th that was on Haunted Schools. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, similar to what this episode was, but it was on Haunted Schools instead of Cop Stories. Yep, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And then a bunch of shorts that uh -huh. we do. So we do an episode almost every single day, depending on what level you sign up at, that determines how many of those shorts you get, so... But if you was to sign up for the major, um, the highest tier, which is $15 a month, you would right now have just under 900 shorts. That's and, so crazy. And somewhere around, what is it, probably 65 full-length episodes. Mm -hmm. If you signed up, you get all those instantly. So if you're running low on Hillbilly Horror Stories or you're caught up, there's your chance. But even if you sign up at the dollar, three dollar, or five dollar level, you still get bonus stuff. Yeah. So. And we appreciate you guys so much, more than you guys will ever know. All right, guys, we will talk to you later. Y'all have a blessed week. <laughs>